Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Luke, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, sure. I, I think usually other people define kind of who I am, but I will just go with Luke Nichter, I'm professor of history at Chapman University. And I guess I'm probably a, a, a political historian um, of uh, the Cold War period, and in particular, the 1960s. Uh, I've done a lot with uh, White House tapes in the past uh, 10 or so years from Kennedy through Nixon. So if it's within that period, I probably at least dabbled with it a little bit. Now, when it comes to the White House tapes, where, I guess, specifically do you find your interest lies? I mean, I love listening to the Kennedy tapes. I love listening to the Johnson tapes, even though I'm not a fan of Johnson. I mean, I would say I'm, biased, I'm not biased at all. I'm just kind of in the middle. Um, balanced approach is kind of like how I like to handle it. But it gives me insight into the presidents. You know, we see a public figure that comes on stage is really well-spoken. Um, very proper sometimes. And when you hear it behind closed doors, it's similar to that, but it's also like you see a different side of them. Like, oh my God, yeah, they're human beings. And that's like what I try and, you know, tell people, like when you listen to some of these tapes and stuff as well, too, it's like some of it can be kind of revealing on some aspects of their character. But for me, it just completes the picture, man. I don't like the Superman story we're always told about people. I kind of like to know about their flaws because I feel like if you really like someone, you have to accept them for whatever might be a flaw. Well, I, I guess, um, you know, my work on the tapes has been driven by a few different interests. Uh, the most practical is I, I teach a class at Chapman University on, on White House tapes from FDR to Nixon. So we really cover from 1940, you know, when that uh, RCA machine was moved in to the, uh, the FDR White House, you know, all the way up until mm -hmm. summer of 1973 with Alexander Butterfield's disclosure of the Nixon taping system. So, I, you know, <clears throat> I'm really interested in the whole sweep of them. And in particular, uh, so many of them have never been transcribed. Um, to date, as we talk here, I would guess maybe five or 10% have been transcribed. And that's shocking to people because it seems like we've heard so much about these recordings. And in particular, whether it be Kennedy uh, Cuban Missile Crisis or, or Nixon Watergate recordings, you know, even take Nixon, I, I would guess that, that I have probably transcribed 15 or 20% of the Nixon tapes, which is far more than anyone else combined. So it just shows you that even though, you know, the, the, the most recent tape, as far as we know, now we can talk about whether presidents since Nixon have taped, and I have ideas about that, but the most recent tape is now almost 50 years old. The oldest one is more than 80 years old, and still I think we're very much at the beginning of a journey of learning about these materials. And then I think the third thing I would point out is just just what really the theme that, that you, uh, to echo the theme that you, you said, these tapes show um, um, th there, are, there are layers and dimensions to the personalities of these leaders. And the tapes show an angle, a dimension that you can't get uh, from, from any other kind of presidential record. I mean, the, the work that I do typically to go into an archive and look at government records and, and somehow try to reconstruct the past, you know, kind of as it really happened, you know, that works better for some subjects than others. But tapes fill a, a gap there. You know, that can only be that that could never be filled, you know, by by memos. 
uh, to the president. So I think tapes offer a, a, a rich um, look into the, the, these, these presidents as, as people, as parents, as spouses, uh, and also, I think, a, a rich look into that time period. Really, it's a, it's a treasure trove of Americana that uh, we really don't have any other way, you know, in the National Archives. So I think, you know, I, I get, I've been working on the tapes for about 20 years, and I get contacts almost every week from the public, uh, researchers, students, the media, um, and, and people have inquiries. Almost every single week, there's inquiries I never thought of, you know, after doing uh, this for 20 years, a subject I never thought about, something I never thought of searching for on the tapes. And what has led me to, to conclude today is how much there really needs to be a clearinghouse for these recordings. There needs to be kind of like a Google search box that we can search from 1940 to 73 on civil rights or war or uh, something on presidential leadership or key figures and names and topics from each of those eras. Some continue on for over across different presidencies. And we don't have that. These recordings are, are separate. They're in their own presidential libraries stored on the antiquated technology of that day. And so I'm really hoping during my career, I can help to bring all these together and really give them back to the American people and allow them to be much more easily searched and usable so we can learn from them than, than they are right now. Well, just nerd out with me real quick. It's fascinating to listen to these things. It's like that answer of the question, which the always question is always, if you had a time machine, you could go back in time and you could be at that moment. This, I mean, you would think that, oh, they know they're being recorded. A lot of people didn't know they're being recorded. A lot of people were just speaking freely. I think even with, if you ask someone about like the White House recordings, they usually always mention Nixon. Nixon is always linked to these White House recordings because the Watergate stuff and things of that sort. But the recording system was in there long before Nixon was there. I think he had his own version of it, but there was, you mentioned FDR. I mean, that's new for a lot of people. They don't know when it started. Could you maybe take me through, like, I guess a little bit of the history of some of these recordings, like when it started, um, you know, where I, if it, there's any changes of different systems that were swapped out during presidencies or administrations and um, when it's allegedly stopped, if there's stuff going on today, we don't need to go into any of that. But if there's just what was the point where I guess we stopped hearing about some of these White House tapes? And, and some of this we have to speculate on uh, when it comes to the origin of the taping system, because, um, as you say, these were secret. So no one talked about them. So we didn't learn about many of these systems until long after the president, each of the presidents knew, and sometimes someone or a circle very close to them. But most of the people who were recorded that we hear on the recordings did not know they're being taped. So obviously today we would have a very different view in terms of um, civil liberties and personal privacy. You, you can't do that. I mean, I can't record, you know, my phone calls or I can't rec secretly record meetings or at least not very long until I get in trouble for doing that. So, you know, it was a different time also that, that we need to understand. But as far as we know, and, you know, there's a degree of speculation involved here, but I, but the, the 1940 uh, FDR was coming up um, running for his third term. That was unprecedented. No, no one had run for a third term. You know, George Washington set the standard as a president, a president's a, a president for two terms. But people don't realize there was no uh, constitutional amendment at that point. Uh, a president could, could keep running indefinitely. Um, but still, Washington had set a powerful precedent. Uh, and so when FDR ran for a third term in 1940, that was controversial, even though there was nothing preventing him from doing that. And so um, RCA had approached him. Um, his technology was was very young at that point to make audio recordings. RCA, as in the RCA company that that we most of us have heard from, 
um, offered to install a large kind of cabinet-like device. Um, it wasn't audio recording. What it was, it was it was a film machine, film as in Hollywood. Um, Hollywood films at that point were were you know Hollywood films started as silent. It's not because they they didn't couldn't record the audio. It's because they couldn't record the audio and the video on the same piece of film. And so they had to report, be recorded uh, separately on, on, on different pieces of film. So RCA offered to, to install this film machine, um, but it was set up only to record uh, audio, not, not video images. And so this large cabinet was installed late in the summer of 1940. And as far as we know, again, FDR has never written about it. We didn't learn about this until decades later. As far as we know, it was because he was, I mean, so much attention was given to Trump and the, and the press, but presidents have been concerned about their relationship with the press for a very long time. And FDR wanted to make sure he was being quoted accurately. And if he wasn't, he could say, that's not what I said. And of course, privately, he would have a recording of, because he often um, brought press into his office to do press conferences. And then you read about the news, you know, the next day in the newspapers. So it was a way kind of ensuring accuracy with the press it was a way of uh, recording events at that time as, as a presidential campaign was beginning. And his rival, Wendell Wilkie, was expected to be a very tough uh, campaigner. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, sort of fireworks early in that campaign. So I think it was just kind of to cover him was really the, the reason. And then he ultimately didn't use it a lot, um, maybe about eight hours. And, you know, Harry Truman ultimately inherited, a, you know, a similar kind of system, didn't use it very much maybe about 10 hours or so. Um, Why so little? Well, we don't know exactly. Um, you know, again, neither one commented on this. It was kind of used more sporadically. Um, Truman's, for example, you can barely understand any of the tapes. Um, on the other hand, there's one press conference that he did where, where you can understand basically every word. So this shows right from the very beginning that one of the, the one of the, the, the worst things from a researcher's standpoint, as we sit here today, is that because these systems were secret, nobody was sitting there sampling the audio saying, you know, if we modified the microphone placement a little bit over here, it would sound a lot better. Or if, if we move the machine over here, or we used a different kind of wire or cable, um, no one was checking it or doing quality control as it went along because it was secret. And so I suspect if it worked better and it produced better results, presidents might have used it more. Uh, so FDR didn't use this very much. Truman didn't use this very much. Now, while Truman was president, uh, General Dwight Eisenhower became president of Columbia University in New York when the Dictabelt began to come into popular use. And so while president of Columbia, Eisenhower, uh, we often think of as kind of an older figure out of date, certainly with the, the 1960s, actually embraced this technology pretty early to make dictations, to dictate correspondence, to make kind of voice notes, you know, effectively. And so Eisenhower uses technology before he was president and then continued it when he was president, still only using it very sporadically. Uh, so all these, you know, the, the technology, if you listen to these recordings, they're very difficult to listen to. You can only pick out words or phrases. I mean, even if you have an exceptionally well-trained ear for what's being said and for the voices being captured, uh, you know, this uh, it, it's pretty tough to tra transcribe. Even me, I can pick out phrases or sentences. That one Truman press conference is really good where you can pretty much pick out the whole thing. 
Um, but uh, ultimately what changes is, is presidents use these systems more uh, beginning in the 1960s. That finally we have uh, the technology with, with whether it be Dictabelt and ultimately real-to-real uh, -real technology where we can do mass recordings. And by mass recordings, I mean, it still pales in comparison to the recording devices that we each carry around in our pockets every day today. But, you know, we can now record dozens or hundreds of hours. And so Kennedy recorded, you know, in the hundreds of hours. Johnson recorded even more in the hundreds of hours. And then Nixon recorded the most of all, um, primarily really for two reasons. Unlike all the other systems, which had an on and an off switch, and I don't think you have to be a complete cynic to conclude it was turned on when it suited the president's interests and it was turned off when it suited the president's interests. Nixon's system was sound activated. And so once you came within range, you know, walk into an Oval Office or pick up a phone that's part of the system, the system began recording automatically. And so you, you're talking many more hours, about 3,400 hours of Nixon tapes. And, and secondly, Nixon didn't want to make the decision of when to leave it on or when to turn it off. He thought that was kind of a dishonest history. Uh, and, and so sometimes people ask me, well, you know, he knew the system existed. He must have been sort of choreographing conversations. And I always say, well, I mean, maybe, but obviously these tapes have hurt Nixon more than they've hurt anybody else. So if he was choreographing his conversations, he sure didn't do a very good job about it. Um, but I think Nixon didn't want to record a selective history. He really wanted to record sort of kind of a, a warts and all history of his administration. But I think the final point I'll, I'll make about these recordings um, to close this part of it is, is none of these recordings were ever intended to be public. No, none of these presidents expected that you or that I could ever listen to these, um, use them on our research or in podcasts or in media and films. These were intended to be the private records of the president, uh, whether they use them later in life, just to, as I said, to cover themselves or when they write their memoirs. And Nixon, for one, had this idea of writing this, you know, Winston Churchillian multi-volume memoir, you know, like the British prime minister did of World War II. And it would be incredible source material to have such detail, you know, in a memoir. That all ultimately changed, not just for Nixon, but for all these presidents as a result of Watergate. And when new statutes were passed in the 1960s and the late 1970s, like the Presidential Records Act, as well as others, now these materials went from being the private collections of the presidents to, to belonging to everyone, to belonging to you and me and to everyone else. And so the law changed. Uh, and so now it's, it's presidents since Nixon have not recorded in this way because our, our statutes have, have made it such that a president can't do this without getting, you know, perhaps following in the footsteps of Nixon. And I think that's been a lesson to everyone who's come after him. When it comes to the taping system changing in the 1960s, um, I mean, was it, did someone else have to do it? Did someone else have to hit the button? I know you said Nixon's was automated, which is, I'm going to have some more questions on that. But I mean, Kennedy's administration, there's certain conversations I could find, and there's a lot of conversations that I can't, whether they were transcribed or not, but there's just... I'm not saying it's important, but I'm trying to figure out, you said best interests, it's turned on. And then also it can be turned off in the best interests. And I start to wonder, what were they considering important? And it helps you kind of identify a little bit more about what the president was kind of seeming as important at the time. Like, obviously you're gonna have a conversation about Patrice Lumumba, or you're gonna, or you have a photo of Kennedy's face, you know, like that, but you're gonna have a lot of insight 
more into what this person was prioritizing as well too. Bay of Pigs. I mean, Kennedy was mad and I think it's hilarious and I think it's interesting, but when someone was doing an interview, he was talking to a general and he was like, and what was with those chairs? They were sitting there by those chairs. And that's my horrible Kennedy accent, but our impression, but that he said that and he goes, well, sir. And then he goes, it's a major fuck up. And just hearing a president say that you, I just picture a bunch of people clutching their pearls. Like, Oh my God. It's like, well, these are people. They have conversations like normal people. They they curse. They talk about profanity. They do a bunch of stuff. And to me, that brings insight because he was mad at someone for spending budget money on some chairs, fancy chairs. And you didn't like how the press made it look. And to me, I go, okay, well, he's obviously you look at Kennedy's policies. He wasn't happy with a lot of the government spending on some things as well, too. And I'm sure there's other things going on as well. But to me, that brings better insight into the person that I've been looking to as assassination for the past like couple of months now. And, you know, you look at Johnson, Johnson's asking about a certain type of tafioca pudding. He doesn't want to cut out of his diet, but he's concerned about the weight gain he's been getting. Um, and his presidency, he's asking about the crotch to be fixed in his pants a little bit lower. Um, cause he, I think he said he was like sitting on a barbered wire bike It's something hilarious like that, where it's like, to me, that's just, is interesting. You get to see these personalities of these figures that you necessarily don't see in a press conference. Conference. And I think that's, to me, I understand um, the importance of like, yeah, these are private conversations. They were never meant to be public. But for me, as just someone who enjoys history right now, is that's important to me, that gives a whole other side of history. And I know people try and find smoking guns and all that. Um, I don't look for that. I just look at like, this is an interesting conversation that helps piece together the public versus the private. Well, I think to your point, uh, I, it, all these presidents, if, if at the time they were making the recording, if they had knowledge that these would be made public one day, I think what we would have gotten would be much different. Um, I think part of the reason why they're so interesting and contain the revelations that, that you say is because they, they never expected that we would know about it. That typically, there would be a trusted secretary like an Evelyn Lincoln, you know, for Kennedy. And, you know, someone close to the president was was aware of the system and was able to control it. Alexander Butterfield did so um, uh, in, in some cases in the cabinet room. So I think they all had a trusted kind of coterie around them. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, whatever agents, presidents, of course, weren't the ones running wire for these systems and, and putting fresh tapes in and fresh reels. They had to have some other cooperation. So in uh, the case of Kennedy, it was uh, the Secret Service. Uh, the Secret Service uh, also helped with, with, uh, with Nixon's. And, uh, you know, whether it be the, you know, the, the army, uh, the secret service, um, science and as a technology division, you know, I think they had, they had to have someone helping them um, put fresh tapes on, keep the system running, but also ensure its secrecy. Uh, and they're under, you know, you, you, whether take Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon, uh, those closest to the president, you can hear often daily on these tapes, didn't know they were being taped. Um, now in Kennedy's case, you can't, I know of at least a couple instances where you can actually hear him talking about the taping system. And so, so Kennedy's system had to be flipped on. So imagine this with me. So you're coming into the Oval Office and we're walking over to sit down. Almost all of that, that's why almost all of Kennedy's tapes are missing the first few seconds because the recording hasn't, st hasn't started yet. And, and in one or two cases, you can even hear him signal, you know, Miss Lincoln, you know, sort of, He'll, he'll kind of give her an instruction to start the recording. So a lot of Kennedys, you're kind of missing the very front end because no one has turned it on yet until until everyone gets into the to the Oval Office. 
Johnson's are primarily on the phone, so they're a very different nature of a conversation. So it's going to be tend to be one-on-one, -on -one, not groups, not meetings for the most part. And the Nixons are kind of a little bit of everything. And all these presidents also, um, it's also not clear why they started recording when they did and why they ended when they did. So the, the dates of recordings don't line up with when they were president. And then also they use it more sometimes, but but less other periods of the presidency. So take Kennedy's. Kennedy's system um, wasn't in until summer of 62. Um, so why are we missing the first 18 months? I don't know. Is that a big you know gap or erasure? We don't think so. We just think that's when it started. And then it ran until his death or just before the, the trip to Dallas. Johnson will have intense periods of usage um, of his tapes. And then he can go weeks without using it. It's sporadic, uh, and, but still we have about 800 hours. Nixon's, Nixon apparently was advised by Johnson, you're going to want a taping system because it's going to protect you. And Nixon ordered the removal all of, Johnson, of, of Johnson's taping equipment. Um, why did he do that? Again, he never commented on that. I don't know whether it's because he thought somehow Johnson could bug him. Or, or maybe Democrats could somehow control that equipment, or it was beyond his control, whatever the case. But Nixon didn't start his until February of 71. And I sometimes joke to my students, but I mean it at least halfway seriously, that if only he started it two months earlier, uh, he, we would have gotten the Nixon-Elvis meeting in the Oval Office. And that would have been an incredible one to have a recording of. The ending of Nixon's is a little more clear when Alexander Butterfield, um, not, not close to Nixon, I know, I know his book is called The Last of the President's Men. He really wasn't one of the president's men. He didn't know Nixon before he worked for him. Um, he was really the sort of guy who whispers in your ear in the Oval Office and says, Mr. President, your 10 o'clock meeting is here. What do I do? I mean, he really kind of helped the trains run on time in the Oval Office, the paper moving in and out uh, around Nixon, but wasn't a close sort of personal staffer. And when Butterfield testified in July 16th, 1973, that that there were recordings uh, made uh, in the Oval Office as well as other locations. Within you know within days, Chief of Staff Al Haig pulled the plug on the taping system because we're in, in the midst of a Watergate investigation that's closing in on Nixon. The taping system was creating you know potentially more evidence every single day that could be used against Nixon. So our ending point of those tapes, uh, the third week of July is a, is a little more clear than the starting point. But as you can see, 50 years since the last tape was made and more than 80 years since the first, there's a lot of unanswered questions still about these recordings. And I think it all goes back to the secrecy. The president didn't sit down and write a memo, today I had the taping system recorded, this is why I wanted it, this is what I hope to achieve with it, this is when I plan to use it, this is how it operates, these are the people who know about it. Again, it was all in secrecy. So we we have we're still uh, these many decades later, still trying to fill in a lot of gaps in our understanding about these systems. What's your thoughts on Nixon? <clears throat> well, that's a big question. <laughs> to what extent? Because do you are you a fan of Nixon or are you more like a lot of the other people that are very critical? Like I said, I come at it with a balanced approach. You talk to Jeff Shepard. Jeff Shepard's obviously on Nixon's side. He believes Nixon was targeted. 
in my opinion, I think there's ample evidence to kind of support that as well, too. I just think that obviously there was a group effort to take him out. I don't necessarily think, you know, he should have stayed in at all. I definitely think he probably needed to go. He was doing a lot of things that he probably shouldn't have been creating his own FBI, um, pushing on the Federal Reserve as well, too. And I don't know if that's a common tactic that presidents do, but it leaves me kind of wondering, like, I mean, everyone has opinions and different perspectives on things. And if you're listening to so much of his tapes, you probably have developed a either a love-hate relationship with the guy. Well, I mean, I, I teach political history. So, you know, when I walk into a classroom in a country as, as closely divided as ours is, you know, I mean, potentially, um, you know, the students are divided, you know, 50-50 as well. And so, I, you know, I, I am my approach to this is really not personal or political. It's really the history. And I, I'm the kind of person in the classroom that usually by the end of the class, somebody raises their hand and says, can, you know, can you just finally tell us what you actually really think? And so, you know, my goal is really to sort of, that's not really my, my job. You know, my job is really, um, if you've learned one thing, it's here's another perspective. Whether, whether your preconceived idea was liberal or conservative, you know, I'm the one who will come at you with, well, what about this? Or what about this other sort of counterfactual? So, you know, I, I, I think because I am, um, I work on kind of the presidency in this period, I have sympathy with a lot of these presidents. And it's not based on political party. It's just based on you realize how difficult the job is and, and how much they're reacting every day to things. We think of the president as being in charge all the time. And I don't think that's true very often. And I think that you learn that from the tapes, just how the president is constantly facing headwinds from, from all sides. Uh, beyond way far beyond what, what's expected you know my own view of, of, of Nixon I suppose um, is 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 much is, is similar to Johnson or Kennedy I, Nixon was extremely professional extremely hardworking. you know I think his personality really held him back from being a, a better leader but I, I do think that a number of the charges against Nixon um, have been have been inflated uh, and have been um, I mean, there's there's usually a, a kernel of truth there someplace uh, in terms of the charges. But, you know, we've, we've just lived through in my lifetime. We've lived through the the attempted impeachment of a Democratic president. We've lived through the multiple attempted impeachment of a Republican president, first Clinton, of course, and then Trump. And so, you know, to me, I, I don't think you have to be a complete cynic to figure out that this is all about political power. This is all these are these are high crimes and misdemeanors. I think we now live in an era that almost any time uh, the House of Representatives is controlled by a party opposite the president, those investigations are going to begin. I mean, I, I hope it's I hope I'm wrong, but I think that's what we're going to see in, in, in the, certainly in the new Congress. And any time we have that arrangement, investigations are going to begin with the possibility uh, especially if the Senate also moves over into that column as the House being opposite of the president. I think that's the era, you know, that we live in. And so I think it's, it's not, a, it's not, it might've been, it seemed like an outrageous statement at one time to say, well, the impeachment process was designed to overturn the president. We've seen it go both ways. Republicans do this to Democrats and Democrats do it to Republicans. And anytime the one seizes a potential opportunity, I think they do it and will continue to do it. Seeing taking that frame of reference and applying that to Watergate probably was once upon a time a very radical view, uh, and I don't think that's so radical anymore. And I think that that is at the heart a lot of what Watergate was about.
I think you can look at a lot of reasons why Nixon was targeted for people can have their own views and stuff, but inside he was targeted in my opinion, at least um, I'd probably agree a little bit more with Jeff Shepard. I do don't think Nixon should have been in office at all, but I mean, you've come across this. So that's not even a dumb question for me to ask. I mean, he made statements about Bohemian Grove. He made a bunch of things that were labeled conspiracy for the longest time. And this is what kind of upset me a little bit is when I was looking at the Hoover and Johnson a minute, um, talking about the assassination and they mentioned Jack Ruby wanting to be taken to Washington, D.C. for a polygraph test. And Hoover said, I don't trust it. I don't trust it a damn bit. Um, and that came out later that the Innocence Project exposed that that's false junk science. That and blood splatter analysis, junk science. And it's like it just made me think I was like, well, if these guys know that that's junk science, but the public knows that it's real at this point in time. And then it comes out later when the Innocence Project exposed it. And now we don't use it anymore. It's not admissible in court. So it was like to me, it was just like. That's where I have hard trouble. Like, I mean, I think it reveals a lot and I understand like the secrecy aspect of things as well, too. But it's those types of things that I've come across in just my only brief, brief interaction um, with some of these tapes that reveal a lot. And you start to see like, I mean, is this how the game's played? And I hate to you know, say it like that, but I mean, politics, it's a corrupt one. I don't necessarily believe in a left or right. I know that's how everyone always wants to put the blame on either left or right. Um, but there's just a lot of things that I was just noticing and it gives you a better sense of just how things run. And I get, it's like political stuff. There's a whole other aspect and avenues that roll with it. But what are your thoughts on that? You had to come across some of these tapes that left a mark on you, like I just said. Well, and I've got, I say this to someone who, um, you know, I, I've got no expertise at all on the, on the Kennedy assassination, but I, but, you know, I think there's, there's a parallel between that subject and Watergate and other subjects that tend to attract um, conspiracy. And, and um, I think the one thing they have in common is, is almost any time the official explanation for what occurred is so unsatisfactory, people go and search for other truths. You know, and, and, I, so, and I think that's definitely true about Watergate. I mean, 50 years later, we're still at Watergate. I would guess easily we've got a couple million pages that have never been released on Watergate. Uh, with Nixon, I would I, tapes. I would guess we have around 500 hours of tapes that have never been released, never been released in 50 years. And so I think people a lot of times assume that when a subject is 50 years old, that we must know everything we can possibly know about it. And I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I think there are reasons why records are are kept secret for a lot a period a lot you know a lot longer than that. Um, and it certainly, here's an example of tapes, and the, the, a lot of the millions of pages are probably grand jury records, which generally don't get opened almost ever in history, except for a few occasions. Uh, so I think, um, and I don't know the reason for this, so, you know, I don't think there's always uh, a deep state, or there's not always someone sort of standing, you know, on, on the side of the government saying, no, you can't have access to this. Sometimes things are just forgotten. And, and public interest turns somewhere else. And unless someone you know, keeps after these records and, and tries to drive their release, they just get forgotten. So there are different reasons why things remain closed. But I think, um, I, I think it's all these subjects, though, are, are a lesson of, of really the essence of history itself. No, it's never really over. We're constantly debating and going through and replaying events, filling in new details. I mean, it's not unheard of from time to time that a family in an attic has records from the American Civil War. Or in recent years, we found, you know, this is one of the only photographs taken of Lincoln during the Civil War. That's how we know about MKUltra. Sidney Got uh, Gottlieb, the, 
guy Stephen Kinzer wrote a book on him when he was on here talking on my show about it. He found it in some dude's garage, like just a bunch of files about MK Ultra stuff. So this is entirely possible. And, and so people think, well, after 50 years, shouldn't we know? And in the big sweep of history, 50 years is not a long period of time. I mean, you mentioned Jeff Shepard and some other names who they were around back then. I mean, it used to be our National Archive system was basically set up in the 1930s based on the British system, which was after the passage of 30 years, open it up. And 30 years, given the average human lifespan, was usually long enough where, you know, everybody was gone. Things weren't really secret anymore. But now, I mean, agencies, I, I don't think that Trump, Trump might have been the first president that I, I, this, I think this is accurate, that didn't modify um, sort of secrecy laws and FOIA exemptions. But I believe under Obama in a second term, some agencies now have a 75-year exemption. Um, and I remember not, I think it was early Obama administration, I recall reading a story, I think in the Washington Post, that the NSA was going to declassify a World War I document which I, did, I, was, I was blown away by. I mean, NSA didn't even exist in World War I. It didn't exist until the post-World War II restructuring of the national security community. And it was a one-page document that contained the recipe for invisible ink, which I, I guess one could assume that must have had some continued you know, operational significance for it to be closed that long, I, I get, or it was just forgotten. I mean, that, that's the, the, uh, the asymmetric relationship between, say, a FOIA requester and an agency is you, you, you don't know why things remain closed. You don't know always why they're classified where they're at or why they're held back or why they're redacted a certain way. And as I say, it wouldn't surprise me at all that sometimes there is a malicious reason and other times there's not. Um, but oftentimes, whatever the truth is, we, we don't learn. And, and I think that's where we have to fill in our own explanation. That's where sometimes the role of conspiracy theory comes in. Uh, so to me, this is these are all parts uh, of what history is. The word conspiracy theory, um, I just have to address that real quick, because a conspiracy theory would be saying what's on the Nixon tapes that was deleted would be JFK assassination. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it was a question I asked Jeff Shepard, and he missed out on that question three times I asked. I don't necessarily believe that's what was on there. I think it, you know something did happen. Maybe it was something confidential. I'm a patriot heart. I do believe in that national security issues. I understand that 100%. But I also ask the question, what's a national security risk? Or what are they deeming that? And what would have been called a conspiracy if you would have said it back then is that those polygraph tests are a lie. And we know from that tape I mentioned earlier about Hoover and Johnson stating that you shouldn't trust it. Now, whether you would say that's his perspective, but they both agreed. And it was talking like it was normal, like a lot of government officials didn't know. And that could be speculation if you want to say that, but there's pretty good evidence in that. That would have been a conspiracy. So like when we say the word conspiracy, I think that's more critical thinking. If you're looking at exactly what has now been deemed wrong, which by the Innocence Project was, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. Any of these tapes you listen to in these private conversations that you could run off and say with conspiracy. But if we know the evidence now, I'm not saying you don't even need to speculate and connect the dots or do any of that type of stuff. But that's defining that word, though. It's like, what do we deem as a national security risk? I mean, MK Ultra was deemed as that. But to me, the public should have had the right to know. I mean, when you look through these tapes, you not only get a better perspective of who the person was, but you also get a better perspective about what works on in politics. Um, so a lot of things can be justified as security risk. And I, like I said, I do agree with a certain line of that, but I just want to know what line is being drawn there. I mean, you mentioned conspiracy right after I said the 
Hoover and Johnson thing where I was like, hang on a second. Like, I'm not a nut job or anything like that. I'm just looking at the basic thing where there was this. And this is what we know now based on 10 years ago when the Innocence Project exposed it. Well, as I say, I, I don't know anything about those subjects. Um, but, um, you know, what I can say is and we've learned in recent administrations. Sure, we see things classified top secret that really might not be or might just be politically embarrassing. You know, I suspect the classification system has been abused for as long as the classification system has existed. Uh, and I, I don't think that's really a, a political statement one kind or, or another. I think we, we see that routinely, whether it be the search for Trump's records uh, in Mar-a-Lago, whether it be Hillary Clinton's emails, whether it be Secretary of State Colin Powell used a private email address to Secretary of State. I mean, every administration, you know, we, we have these kind of, I think Obama wiretapped far more journalists, email tapped, cell phone tapped, uh, than certainly Nixon or Johnson ever did. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think one of the things about the, the, the journey that, that history is, if you really dive into it, is I think it gets harder and harder to, to become kind of a political zealot and to maintain a, a rigid set of political ideals. Because I think you do realize that, that, you know, the patterns emerge across Republican presidencies, Democratic presidencies, um, and, and a lot of presidents have done similar things. So, and, and have scan, scandals are certainly bipartisan or nonpartisan even. So I think, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that, that, that can be so most informing about a history education is I think it does help you to move beyond partisanship, beyond our news feeds and beyond the, the talking points of talking heads on, on cable networks. I think when you look at who controls the taping system or whatever recordings, even if there's recordings being done today, who has the right to know what gets released and when it does get released? I mean, is it a security issue if the agency just has a private phone call about something or is there more historical value that adds in a giant perspective? Like I even talk about the JFK stuff, all the conspiracy stuff would be dead and done if they would have just put the documents out. And then I've spoken to many of the people that were in that conference that they had recently about the suing Biden for those document releases that are out there. I mean, it's like that with Anything, any of these organizations should have the power, National Archives, whatever, to be able to declassify these things. And it shouldn't be like a 75 year period as well, too, because, I mean, a lot of these issues, I understand we're dealing them with in our times and stuff. But even when I spoke with John Sunheim from the AARB, the Assassination Records Review Board. I mean, he's for full classification or declassification. He wants that documents released to the public so the public can have answers. So that there's things that can be revealed about stuff. And he exposed some things as well, too. And I get it. The family jewels. I talked to Robert Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassination. I understand that 100 percent. Talk to John Ranley from this intelligence of uh, all the CIA books that he has. And he's a patriot of the intelligence community, too made me actually think differently when it came to being critical on a lot of these things, because it is that national security issue. I mean, who do you think should have the power and when it's archival data like this, when it comes to recordings, when it comes to documents, when it comes to all this? I mean, do you think it should be up to independent agencies or do you think it should just be under one organization like how the ARB was, but have a broad branch, I guess, brush for it, which is just for historical value? I mean, I think when you look into politics, like you said, I mean, it's really hard to just be confined to 100% right wing or 100% left. You kind of end up in the middle, kind of tossing back and forth. And I guess you pick your individual presidents on who you like the most or how much you know about them. But I feel like for historical purposes, you have a lot of kids that are, you know, getting a really, I wouldn't say crappy job of a history 
class, but they're not getting hundred percent of everything. I mean, I was shown a crappy Zapruder film and then talked about JFK for 10 minutes. And it wasn't until three months ago, I started being like, okay, there's a lot, a little bit more here than what meets the eye. Um, at least when it comes to understanding government operations, Operation Northwoods, a bunch of those types of things. And I feel like, you know, if it's history, you get one-sided history. And I feel like it's, it's why a bunch of other countries, they know a different perspective of us, whether it was just because of our media or something like that. But I feel like we should have an organization that looks for the historical value in it. And for historical purposes, I think it shouldn't be delayed for so long as well either. Well, I mean, um, I, I sit on the federal government's FOIA advisory committee. So I'm not, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. Um, well, I, I don't, I don't think I know anything that can get me in trouble, but <clears throat> I mean, let's look at how this works practically. You know, if you have, if you're putting in a FOIA request to the presidential library of some recent president and it's classified top secret and for national security or intelligence reasons, you know, that document might need to go to, there, there's no one clearinghouse, you know, who can decide. The National Archives doesn't have the ability to force a federal agency to disclose its records. I think the, the way this works typically is by consensus. You know, that document might be circulated to as many as you know several dozen members of the uh, national security community to sign off on it. And really, un unless it's it's unanimous, you're, you know, you're not going to get your record. You might get a redacted record of some kind. But I mean, all these agencies have to decide, you know, in, in the, the term of art is, you know, the equity that they have in the document. And so, I mean, there's there's, there's really not a clearinghouse. I mean, you saw under Obama um, efforts to create the NDC, the National Declassification Center, which is part of the National Archives. And there you have liaison relationships with the individual agencies where they can, at least in theory, make you know, you know, quicker uh, declassification um, decisions about a record. But that's been a slow process that was then delayed even more by COVID. Um, what's supposed to be happening is, is around the country, you know, classified holdings are being moved, you know, to the Washington, D.C. area in order to empower the NDC to do the job that I just described. That's been a very slow process. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. You know, academics have been critical of what I've just described because they see it as a power grab by certain agencies. Well, now we're never going to see the records, you know, that, that were at, you know, a presidential library in Austin or Boston or Ann Arbor, uh, Johnson, Kennedy or Ford's. There's another way of looking at it too. A lot of times I do research, you know, my last, the, this book I'm wrapping up now is in the 1968 presidential election. And so as I'm looking at records related to the Paris peace talks negotiations in the summer of 1968, I've got the same record in the Johnson library, um, the copy that Henry Kissinger and Nixon inherited in 69, because they had to learn what had been negotiated just before they came into power, promises made, broken, kept, then you have the copies elsewhere in the National Archives, the lead negotiator, Averill Harriman, his papers at the Library of Congress. He has a set of these things, and they're all redacted differently. The same document. I can literally take a document and go to these different agencies and say, why did you redact this? I know what that says because I have another copy of it. This shows you how broken the declassification system is. So if we can centralize this and have more consistency in the way we're releasing records, it will speed things up. And we won't have these awkward situations that I describe, which probably in, in reality, um, you know, thousands of other people have, have experienced something similar. So, you know, it's complicated. I mean, if you are running, you yourself are running a federal agency, you sure don't want some other agency deciding what should be open or not. 
And so you can imagine, it, you know, it becomes turf battles with a lot of these decisions. And the real loser, in my opinion, it becomes the researcher, the requester, or the American people, and why it is so slow, you know, to, to get things uh, opened. But let me give you one other example. You know, I remember um, when I first started out at Texas A&M about 10 years ago, I had a lot of students in my classroom had done the deployments in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I mean, imagine that being a kid and then they came back, you know, to get their college degree afterwards with a new GI Bill, because a lot of them told me, like, look, I want to have a better understanding of what I just saw on these tours and the history of that region. And, and, you know, they, they, get, they would give me an example and they, they would, the classroom at that point would kind of flip and they'd be teaching me something. And they would say something like, you know, if a, if a kid in Afghanistan who's kicking a soccer ball around comes up to, him, up, to, up to me and I give him a piece of candy and make friends with him and he tells me which cave, you know, the bad guy's in, what's our, and he's right, like what's our duty, you know, as a country to protect that kid and his family? For the rest of his life. I mean, so some of these decisions are really important. You know, is that the per person who should be airlifted? Are they now United States citizens? Should the name of that kid in an intelligence report be redacted for the rest of his life in case any of his cousins or any, anybody comes after his family? So some of these decisions, I think, are just boneheaded. Federal government decisions where they, they're, they're not doing the job. But some of these decisions, which I think they are the exception, are of the kind I just described, where it's complicated. And I'm not sure what the right thing is to do because obviously I'm on the I'm on the FOIA advisory commission committee and I'm a I'm a requester. I put in over 2,000 FOIA requests. So I mean I really try to drive the limit of the outer limit of what I do, what's known, what's disclosed, what's open on my subject, because if I don't, no one else will. So I mean I'm driving the release of a lot of records. But I also see examples like the one I just described. And that's not so easy to sit back and say, you know, what's the right thing to do? Maybe you can help change my perspective on the FOIA requests. Um, I've been kind of critical about it, mostly because I'm like, the government doesn't have to give you the, like, people just expect, like, it's like a magic wave of the wand. They just submit something and they immediately are going to get an answer back to whatever they want. And I go, they don't have to give that to you. It's like asking, can I please have this? And then they say yes or no, depending on if they deem it whatever. But a lot of people talk about, like, it took me five years to get these files. It took me six years to get these files. That makes sense on the workload, depending on how hard it is to make sure you get all the checks that you need to be able to classify it or whatever with maybe some redactions or something like that. But it's like the UFO topic as well, too. I mean, how many Freedom of Information Act requests have you guys been getting over that whole subject as well? I mean, that's a whole area where people are just submitting things, submitting things, submitting things, and either they don't hear back for all, which I get. Like I said, it's the workload. I understand that. But it's also like they don't have nobody has to tell you any of this stuff. Like that's the biggest thing. I feel like a lot of people that file these things have it ingrained into their head that they're they're 100 percent responsible to give an answer to them. And I go, no, they can just say they can't disclose anything or it's a security issue or they just don't answer you back. I've been lucky that with dealing with the archives for JFK, the guy who runs the whole library um, said I could use a lot of the photos or anything that they had, obviously, for, you know, the project I'm working on and. I, that that's openness. I like that. But also at the same time, I don't, when it comes to freedom of information act requests, I mean, the number of JFK researchers that have done it, the UFO people that I've talked about do it, it's never been positive experience. So I'm just hoping you could share your experience in it to help me at least see it from both sides here. Like I understand the workload thing, like I mentioned before, I mean, that changes a bit of my thoughts on it. I get it. I just don't know how many people are required to do how many certain documents, you know, how many people you got on your committee or anything. 
Well, I mean, the way I see the FOIA might be different than the way other people see the FOIA. I mean, when President Johnson signed the FOIA law um, in, into to, to power in the, in the mid-1960s, you know, I think there was an expectation that unless there's a reason, it should be open, that that record belongs to you and me and to every other, you know, stakeholder in our democratic system of government. I think that the way I see it differently than other people is, I, you know, I think the FOIA does is people don't understand. It's not a one way communication. It's a two way communication. It, 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 it informs the requester community of their legal and administrative rights on how to request a review of a document. That's the obvious part of FOIA. But it also is helping those agencies to know the legal ways they can deny that access. I mean, it works both ways. And I think ultimately it's up to, I think typically it's the general counsel and each agency, which will issue guidelines for how to do that, how to process these, uh, how to deny, how to approve, how to redact. And so each agency needs to develop, you know, guidelines, but it's not, you know, there's the National Archives isn't riding herd over this whole process. Um, you know, and so you see some really absurd things. You know, I, I I have had good luck getting all kinds of FOIA requests out in the last uh, documents released as a result of FOIA requests in the last dozen dozen or so years. I mean, I, we're talking millions of pages. Um, you know, some really great, some not great, some that wasn't what I was expecting, and some of little no value. But you know, I still hold on to them because a lot of times researchers will contact me and say, "Have you gotten anything out on this topic or that topic?" And a lot of times I have, and I'm happy to to share um, these documents with others sort of, you know, in the trench here with me. But I think FOIA, I think the current administration has basically concluded that, that the FOIA is broken. Um, and, and regardless of what one's views might be of the current administration, I think that's probably pretty close. And I think a lot of the, the FOIA advocacy groups, you know, uh, agree similarly. To address several points quickly that you raised, um, you know, most agencies are, are not responding, acknowledging a request within 20 working days. Well, then it boils down to how do we count working days when it gets into holidays? You know, are these COVID days? I mean, COVID time is calculated differently than other things. Um, I have, you know, I, I typically wait at least five years for any kind of major request. And lately it's been more like 10. So, I mean, the, a lot of people think oh, if I put in a request, I'll have my documents next week. And it's just, that's not the way it works. I mean, especially if you're sending a request to an agency that has investigative powers, it likely has in its files, in that agency's files, records from lots of other agencies. Well, it, they need to consult with those other agencies, which triggers lots of ripple effects in order to process your request. So there are lots of legitimate reasons why things take a long time. Now, there are also lots of reasons why the reason the, the, for the delay is, are things that we can do something about. Most FOIA offices are dramatically underfunded, understaffed. There's no centralized control of FOIA, uh, how, how uh, redactions are interpreted, how statutes are interpreted. So there are things that we can do. But I mean, just, just you know, it's, I think it's very easy. You put a group of FOIA requesters in a room and pretty soon they're going to pile on some agency or the federal government who's not doing a very good job. But also don't forget, you know, Congress, as it always does, you know, it'll pass the FOIA or it'll pass Obamacare and exempt itself. And so to this day, legislative records, for the most part, you know, are, are not included in the FOIA. Judicial records, for the most part, are not included in the FOIA. 
So, you know, even the even the lens that that we get into the federal government is extremely narrow into a certain time period into certain agencies and only the small percentage of records that are actually considered permanently valuable and, and retained by an agency over decades so that we can request it one day. So, you know, th there's lots of reasons why this process is is not working, I think, the way that it was intended. Um, and, you know, I, I'm trying to do my part along with uh, some others to, to improve this process. But as you can imagine, it's, it's a pretty uphill battle to get any agency to do anything, let alone to get them all to cooperate and, and do this together. Well, what are some improvements that we could do? Because um, some issues that I started to see arise, which was during the Watergate hearing, when you heard uh, William Colby, if you read his testimony and everything, and they're asking for a certain document, he's like, I think it's the CIA. And then like, so do we have to go to the CIA for that? You'll have to go to the CIA for that. And then you see that it's always this finger pointing. That's the FBI's document. And then the FBI is like, oh, that's actually the NSA's document. And the NSA, you go through them. And it's this long haul process where it's like, I don't know if that's a smart way of just saying no, or we can't give this to you without giving you the official it's classified type deal. But I mean, there's improvements that we could do to at least help out the process or at least make your workload a little bit easier as well, too. I understand the funding aspect, but I mean, what other I, I'll be an advocate, you know, at this point. But I mean, when it comes to just speeding up the process for people as well, too, I mean, I get the stress workload and all that. But if we just talk about funding you guys a little bit more money, um, maybe lessening the agency's control on these documents as well too i mean if you have 20 days to submit something back and you're not hearing back for a while i mean that's a another issue i mean they have certain rules and it's the same thing when i talked to tunheim when he was trying to get documents unredacted and you know to release about the jfk stuff people's names people that might have a mental health issue you know talk to the families or intelligence operations that are going on are obvious reasons that you have to blank something out. But I mean, none of them were cooperating. The same thing with the Secret Service destroying documents happened back when the AARB requested for documents. And then two weeks later, they destroyed them again. We have a large, weird thing that we do. And I get it. We got a lot of receipts and a lot of paper and, you know, got to make some room sometimes. Um, but it's that destruction process. You saw it in the HSCA. Um, during their investigation, Blakey was like, hey, stop destroying documents because they were asking, we want to start going back to the process. We got a lot of paper. We need to start destroying some documents. And that's like, I mean, you leave the door open that with that on your own fault. Um, the agencies do when there's wondering why there's conspiracy theories out there. It's because you just you you don't give them any room to think anything else. I mean, I'm very plausible and I'm very critical um, when it comes to either conspiracy theories and a lot of the official stuff. I'm not just a tinfoil hat or anything like that, despite some of my episodes. Um, I'm more intelligent when I start looking at these things and I go, well, you're opening up the door for conspiracies if you start destroying documents. So you can't blame that for happening. But what also are you considering that is important that after someone requests for something, it gets destroyed two weeks later? So that is another critical question where I start going. I mean, it doesn't just get people mad at the agencies and it doesn't just get people upset with the government in general. But this idea of like trust in us that everyone hears, you're not going to have that when there's these types of gaps and loopholes. I mean, I don't blame any conspiracy theorists. I'm actually critical on a lot of the ones that I just can't get with. And that might be my own perspective as well, too. Um, but coming with talking with so many people from both different sides, you start to realize that there's probably a more likely answer and it doesn't always have to be super conspiratorial, but also I don't do not put it above the government to try and destroy something important. I mean, MK ultra is a, a prime example of that. And I think that puts more pressure on you guys as well too, when they don't cooperate. 
Well, I think the situation that you illustrate is why so many complex FOIA cases end up in litigation pretty quickly. Um, you know, but even then, I mean, what what can that judge do? You know, on the bench, that judge can't go into an agency and know where those records are physically stored and decide what can be released. I mean, even 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 when it makes it to litigation before a friendly judge, you know, when you've got as a requester all the odds on your side. It's still really a you know a crapshoot whether you see your records one day or not. What about digitization? Well, digitization though is, you know, I don't know how. I mean, I don't have a lens into a lot of agencies how they're using digitization, but most agencies consider that digitization doesn't matter in in the sense that the paper record is still the official record. The digitization is just a derivative of that record. So I don't, then you have records that are born digital. You know, obviously email records, I guess, are are digit, you know, digitized or digit born digital. In fact, so we haven't gotten into there because those records aren't really open for researchers. I mean, there's not really the Bush Library really hasn't released that. Uh, Obama has released almost nothing, and then we don't know about the Trump Library. So we haven't even really gotten there yet in terms of re I don't know any researcher who's going to a presidential library yet and going through text messages you know, or instant messages or um, email records yet. So that's really kind of even the next frontier of research. Um, so, I, you know, in terms of where do we go from here? You know, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, but I, I wonder whether it's time in this country, you know, sort of if we move to call it FOIA, FOIA 2.0, whether we need a kind of FOIA ombuds function. Um, and, and a FOIA ombuds function can't, still will not be able to force they can't tell an agency what to release or to redact, but at least administratively, it can be a clearinghouse for requests. It can ensure that requesters know their legal administrative rights. It can make sure that requesters' responses get a get a get a response. That there's a tracking number. That there's a, a person, a point of contact. If you have questions, or you know what, it's been five years since my request. I've moved since then. You know, I don't want to have those records go to my old address and then and then not get them. Um, another thing recently is agencies are sending sending what they call still interested letters. And it's, if they make you wait five or 10 years, then they send you a letter, which might go to an old address and then have to be forwarded to you if you see it at all. And it says, you know, it's been five years since your request. Uh, we just want to find out if you're still interested. And if we don't hear from you in 10 days, you know, we're going to go ahead and close your request after you've been waiting five or 10 years. So there's all kinds of things like this that I think should be fairly easy, you know, to fix. But unless there's some kind of administrative clearinghouse. Now, I mean, the National Archives has OGIS, the Office of Government Information Services, but it's not empowered to do the things I'm describing. I mean, its budget, its staff would probably have to be increased tenfold in order to to perform the kinds of function that I'm describing here. But maybe maybe that's where we're headed. You know, we really need to centralize more of these efforts so that the relationship between the requester and the agency, you know, is is more consistent request to request. I mean, maybe that's one possible scenario. Does it have to all be at once to get the type of budget and get the type of people, manpower? Can we slowly start start a process? There's always this talk of like, well, to do that, it'd have to be like this. And it's like, well, we can start the process, though. We can slowly work our way up to where it needs to be to be the effective model that we need, right? I mean, 
I'm not, don't think of this as me like debating you here at all. I'm not doing that. I'm just asking, trying to ask rational questions on some things when it comes to these agency powers and the, you know, stuff that like, obviously I get secrets and all that, but, you know, coming from a civilian standpoint, when it comes to requesting for freedom of information, I mean, it helps me understand more from your perspective, what's going on when someone submits these requests and they're waiting the next week in their mailbox and checking and calling and doing that. I have to think of it like the unemployment line during the pandemic, when you're just calling and it's just ringing and ringing and ringing and going to voicemail because they're getting billions and millions or let's say millions of calls a, a day. A bunch of people are calling as soon as the phone line, I mean, five minutes before the phone lines, I remember. Um, when I was doing that as well, too, I mean, it took months and I was not happy, but then I was happy when it came. Um, but that's the system was not it was overworking people. It wasn't set up properly. I think if we talk about a 2.0 with the FOIA request, I think maybe some new guidelines should be added as well, too. Um, I would place you guys or anyone who's working, submitting requests and doing these types of things. I think you guys would have overall authority. Um when it comes to they need to reach back whatever agency you're asking for needs to reach back to those things asap um and yeah well i think the answer to your question is you know whatever action is taken and i hope there is action taken it is not it's not going to be perfect I mean, we're going to have to be willing to live with a less than perfect scenario and i say that because you, you take the action it's going to have to be legislative action on the hill so you're going to have to take the action when you have a hero or heroes or hero heroine on the Hill, who's willing to lead the charge and sponsor a bill and co-sponsor a bill. And so I think, you know, that, that's your window of opportunity. It very rarely does a, a member of Congress, does a senator come along and say, you know what, I'm going to make openness in government. I'm going to make FOIA reform. I'm going to make transparency my major issue, you know, during these two years or the six years. It's almost unheard of. I mean, they've got to take care of folks at home in the congressional district, you know, in their state. They, they have committee service they have to take care of. So it's very unusual just to even have the stars align in a way where you get a champion on the Hill to emerge and take this seriously. Because you need the stars to align on the Hill, and then you need the stars to align in the judicial branch, because a law like this is going to be challenged. A lot, probably maybe a lot of times. Maybe the administration won't like it. Maybe some agency, federal agency won't like it. And so you also need to have your votes lined up uh, in terms of friendly judges who can hear these cases. So it's very unusual that you get the stars lined up. So I think anytime you have a, a powerful senator, a restructuring in power, you know, we're, we're reaching another point now when seniority will be, the deck will be reshuffled in terms of committee uh, chairs and in terms of leadership on both sides and both chambers. And I think people in the FOIA area are looking for who might that leader be in the next two years or four years or six years. And is this something that we can get done knowing that there's a presidential election coming up and, you know, certainly presidential dynamics are, are totally thrown in their heads between will Biden have challengers within his own party? You know, will Republicans put up a serious challenger in 2024? And so you have to see that it's very rare that you get the stars aligned at the right time on the Hill, something that the administration is going to support, something that the judicial branch, when it's challenged, is going to be on your side. So you can see it's why even just to get some kind of, we're not even talking about what kind of reform do we want, just to have the, the potential for some kind of FOIA reform, you know, it's pretty unusual. 
shouldn't it be just like how the Supreme Court is where you live and you die on the bench? I mean, can't we just have an organization that doesn't have to change per administration that's involved into it? Can we have a nonpartisan? I'm independent, probably. I mean, I'm, well, I would say more libertarian, but I'm not burn it down governments. I would say I believe in a deep state, which keeps me out of the political crap. I just think everything's kind of pointless anyway. And I like, I don't care if you believe in it or not. I just, I think it's a better life to live than worry about all oh, Republicans did this or Democrats did this or liberal conservative. I don't care. Um, I think p- people with that mindset being established as like, if they want the permanent job until they can retire in the FOIA that does not get affected per administration change. I mean, saying, well, what happens if this person comes into office and the whole deck will be shuffled. I, I, I just, I think that needs to be a, a separate organization. I mean, if you have freedom of information advocates out there, people that are passionate about it and they would like a job doing it, I think that's your best bet. I mean, it's hard. I understand people have their biases and stuff, but you know, I'm not a one in a million type person that just doesn't have a bias in things. You can easily find that. Um, there's plenty of other people. John Thunheim's pretty um, unbiased in some aspects of things he is a government official though so that's my conspiracy side coming in i'm like oh, take everything and he says like face value um but you can have people doing that in a separate organization that isn't is not affected by a change in administration or any government influence even government funding i think that's the same thing with academia that i support is that i don't think they should be funded 100 percent by the government um in some of their studies that they do i think you should well get- one one model for FOIA reform is maybe we need to create a new type of federal court you know, we have, in addition to sort of district courts and appellate courts, we have tax courts, we have bankruptcy courts, you know, kind of courts that specialize in certain subjects. You know, another proposal that I've heard for FOIA reform is maybe we need to have a FOIA court uh, that sits in D.C. And that would be something that could operate the way you describe, where it's sort of, you know, maybe it's judges or officials for life that operate independently of the cycles of power in Washington. Um, they, I mean, they would still have to contend with powerful forces in the federal agencies, you know, whose own, you know, career civil servants can can be there for decades. But uh, that, but I will, if it reassures you at all, that is one of the models that I've heard proposed. But again, I mean, for 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 a legislative branch, for an executive branch, or a judicial branch to support that model or any other model, they have to be willing to give up a little power. And I think that is often the first stumbling block to any reform is, is, is um, you know, when it serves you. Let's take the Electoral College debate. Uh, the last serious attempt to uh, remove the Electoral College and to elect presidents according to the proportion of popular vote in each state was by Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who I just wrote this. My last book was a biography of Lodge. And at least in recent years. When it suits, who was a Republican from Massachusetts, kind of moderate Republican. So when it suited Republicans, they proposed getting rid of the Electoral College because at the time they wanted to destroy a 20 year stranglehold, as they saw it, of the Democrats controlling the White House from FDR through Truman. And in more recent years, when we're in a a political season, and we'll see how long it lasts, but it is a political season, and all political seasons come to an end, we're in a political season. When we have the winner of the White House, according to Electoral College, lose a popular vote. So we've seen several Democratic proposals also to get rid of Electoral College. So a lot of times these proposals are made based on what's good for a party, uh, which might which might not be good for your party. You know, it could it could boomerang and not be good for your party 20 years from now. So I think when it comes to major structural constitutional reforms, 
I think most party leaders, despite what they say during interviews, despite what they say during press conferences, are actually pretty conservative. I mean, small C conservatism, because they understand that if we get rid of the nuclear option in the Senate, if we get rid of the filibuster, it might serve our purposes for this year. But, you know, eventually the other party is going to be in charge and that could backfire on us pretty badly. So while I think most people agree with the kinds of reforms that you and I are talking about, it's going to require like each of the branches of government probably to give up a little bit of its power. Uh, and so you can see there are lots of hurdles to finally getting, you know, intentions translated into actions. Yeah, that power. I mean, I, I, I get what you were talking about earlier about some people believe that there is this like power grab type thing, because, I mean, there is, the I mean, obviously viewable power situations. And it's hard to like you were saying, it's hard for people to give up a little bit of power in some aspects of things. But I don't know. I, I look at I, I don't have any power in any of this, so I probably can't really understand what it's like if you do have the power i'm sure you don't want to give it up but i don't know the importance and historical value as well too i mean if you have independent researchers that are requesting for things i mean is it new researchers all the time or is you constantly see names that constantly get brought up all the time i can pick a handful of people out of all the conversations i've done that i know file freedom of information act requests but i mean even for me logging onto that site was like jesus anxiety um, I just, I don't know where to go. don't know what to request. don't know what process to go through. And I think that's probably with a lot of the general public as well, too, um, unless you're hundred percent invested or you feel like they have something that you need, um, you'll follow through with a lot of that stuff. But I mean, do you see constantly new names or new people that are requesting for documents all the time? Or do you constantly come across maybe the same ones? Well, I'd say I, I would say it really kind of depends on the on the request. You know, a, mo a lot of agencies will actually keep track of who they call their frequent their frequent filers. Hmm. Sometimes they call them their their vexum filers. It's like frequent flyers, but frequent filers. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, say that three times quickly. But there, so it is because because a lot of the people who are the the frequent filers work for you know advocacy groups. And so that's their job. That's their day job. They're putting in requests. They might be filing, you know, they might be, be you know, they might be engaged in litigation. A lot of them are, are, you know, a lot of them are attorneys. You know, one of the things I've suggested during my term on the FOIA Advisory Committee, because I, I'm, look, I'm not an expert. I don't work for the government. Um, I, I'm not an attorney. A lot of this I had to learn through making mistakes, the terminology, just what you described now, like how do you make a request? Like how do you navigate this process? I think it's gotten so burdensome and complex that the average person couldn't possibly navigate this for the first time. And one thing that I think it seems so common sense to me, I think we need to get more people involved in holding elected officials accountable. We need more new faces making requests. Something as simple as could this, this committee, you know, during my term of service, help to foster the creation of kind of FOIA yeah, information? You know, how do you make a request? Here's where to look for information about an agency. I think that would be a tremendous public service. I think as it is right now, the system is, is basically understood by experts. So you have the large requesters who work for organizations who are also involved in litigation. And then you have the agencies and their FOIA offices. And I think the vast majority of the American population is not part of this process. And so I, I'd like to bring some sunlight into this process 
and 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 help people to understand, you know, how to do that. I see so many news headlines every day, whether it be conservative news or liberal news, some story about records or FOIA or some kind of national security restriction, which I can read and, and patently makes no sense. Obviously, the journalist doesn't understand FOIA. Neither did their editor or whoever published the story. And so I think we need to get more practical information about how to hold elected officials accountable in the hands of people in a way that they can be understood, where you don't need you know, to have a law degree or a PhD to understand. So I would be in very much in favor of that so, so that you know, we can make more of this process make sense. It's not something you read about, but more people can take part in it. And I mean, at all levels. I mean, some kind of FOIA exists for local officials, you know, county, state. Uh, we've talked mainly about federal and large federal agencies, but there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of parts of our federal system that, for any, if you're a voting person, no matter how you vote, if you vote, you should take an interest in making sure your elected officials are doing what they say they're doing, are doing what they promised they would do. And when you vote that certain way, I, that, that's a right that all of us should have. And until those rights are explained clearly, I would argue they're rights that we don't fully have. I think what you're doing when you're explaining your perspective is something for a new for a lot of people because we never hear that. Like you're mentioning a lot of these news or journalist sites that kind of are very critical about some of the they usually attack the freedom of information uh, offices or something like that. And they don't understand, I guess, the workload that's going on behind the process. I think that education is important. Glad I asked the questions about it. And you, I'm happy you shared your perspective on it as well, too, and your experience, because um, I don't curse you guys under my breath now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But it's. It's serious, though, when it comes to like I'm understanding it a little bit more and I'll reach out to more people who anybody who's an advocate on that to understand their experience a little bit deeper, because I think when you see how you just show me that and you show it to them, then what happens is they start going and blaming you and they start going, how do we get you funding? How do we get you what you need to where you can do your job effectively? And I think that's, you know, we don't really have I didn't a lot of people don't have a chance to talk to the people involved in the house select committee on assassination so if you're reading their documents you're mad at them for not asking certain stuff whether it's hindsight or whatever but talking to blakey i've only gained more respect um just because i understood all the stuff that he was going through as well too during his investigation and i think you need that um it's i wouldn't say it's a balanced approach but it's just about kind of understanding you know that each person you might be yelling at on one line of the phone might be going through their own little, you know, different world of problems going on. And I think that helps understand a little bit more. I'm very happy that you gave me time to talk on my show as well, too, um, and explain. I know you probably didn't think it was going to go in this direction, but I do really appreciate the time. It's, I'm happy to have a conversation with you. Um, is there a place where people can find any of your links? Um, well, first of all, I would say, um, you know, what you do here is an important public service. Uh, and as someone who tries in his own work to frame what I do as a public service, you know, I, I recognize that. Um, and I, I can say transparently, um, I'm not here to defend anybody. Uh, I'm not paid by any agency. I have stumbled my way through this process by making mistakes. I'm basically self-taught. And being self-taught comes with the pros and cons of being self-taught. You're not inhibited by what you learn, but there's lots of things you don't know that are in a blind spot that I, you know, I'm learning every day about this process. So I'm always happy to elaborate and tell people what I've learned. You know, I, it's, I realize it's much bigger than me. And so it, what I have experienced can help other people. I'm always glad to do that. 
as far as uh, you know, my own work, um, uh, probably the easiest way to, to track me down, and I'm pretty accessible. Um, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of in case I, I get questions from people all over the place on all kinds of subjects. A lot of them I can't help with, but if I can, I certainly will. Um, but LukeNichter.com, it's L-U-K-E-N-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. Um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm a, hist a professor of history at Chapman University in Orange, California. And when it comes to records or FOIA or presidential history, uh, national security, Cold War, um, if you have a question, a concern, a research interest, um, I'm always always glad to hear from people all over the... I, I learn when I hear from you. I, it helps me to think about things differently than I normally would. So I'm pretty easy to get a hold of and I'm always glad to, uh, to help out. I'm going to link our links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for listening to this episode of the Blank Podcast.